Hello, America. It is Eric Erickson here at the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Oh, we got an impeachment on the brain this morning. The senators, I don't know that they've woken up yet. They were falling asleep last night. And I regret that this did not come out until the very end of my show yesterday because it really puts in perspective the way things are shaping up over in the Senate. Uh, the uh National Republican Senatorial Committee put out this video yesterday, right before the Senate trial. You know, I would watch this movie. I mean, this video is like a trailer until you realize that the best parts are in the trailer and and we don't actually want to sit through that. I took a bullet for the team and I watched the impeachment trial. I am in such a foul mood today. I actually got got into a a, a, a text message war with my producer because he made me mad this morning because he didn't realize what a foul mood I was already in, and I had to apologize. He, here is the video from the, well, you can't see it. You're just going to have to listen, but it's perfect. It really sums up that this has been in the works since the day Donald Trump was elected. They never wanted him to be president. They never even thought it was possible. This isn't a real presidential run. Trump will not be president. He will never be president. But then, America spoke. A complete earthquake. Donald Trump wins the presidency. And when President Trump was sworn in as the 45th president of the United States, the left lost it. This impeachment sham started the day he was elected. The first headline in the Washington Post before the president was inaugurated was they were going to impeach him. I will fight until he is impeached. We're going to go in there and impeach the mother. I'm concerned that if we don't impeach this president, he will get reelected. This is about preventing a potentially disastrous outcome from occurring next year. They're impeaching me. You know why? Because they want to win an election. And that's the only way they can do it. So let's be clear. This is not some neutral judgment that Democrats came to reluctantly. It's not some somber moment or serious exercise for the left. It is the predetermined end of a partisan crusade. Nancy Pelosi has said she's not going to send the articles of impeachment over. Wait a minute. This is not very serious if you're not sending over the articles. For handing out souvenir impeachment pens. The Congress is wasting a lot of their time and our time. I've been a Democrat for 49 years. I'm very disappointed in the Democratic Party right now. They are trying to prevent President Trump from winning a second term. An angry mob is at the gate. But the United States Senate has the watch. The Senate exists for moments like this. So it's time for the adults in the room to have their seat at the table. Nancy Pelosi and House Democrats have had their turn. The sham is over. A fair trial starts now. The impeachment trial begins. Well, yeah, the fair trial begins, and it began, well, it, it late in the day, Chief Justice John Roberts had to lecture the sides. I, You know, 
the nutshell thing here is that uh, Adam Schiff, believe it or not, did a better job than than Republican Twitter would have you believe. He actually he made the case based on existing facts and witnesses that the president should be convicted. The president's team was bogged down in procedural arguments. They thought that the Democrats were going to make the procedural arguments and the Democrats uh, actually were able to, to get a surprise off on them because here they come with Adam Schiff making a legitimate case for impeachment based on existing facts. And, you know, I, I listen, I realize I, and I used to be in the world and and I finally just got fed up with the the intellectual dishonesty of it. Of oh, Adam Schiff's a cl- he is a clown. Adam Schiff is an absolute clown, and he's not a he's not the great guy to lit- to, to litigate this long term. But his opening statement was solid, despite what you're hearing. And uh, some of the president's team were a little more clownish than they should have been, bogged down on procedural matters and process arguments when the other side's cleaning their clock on, yeah, look at all the evidence and witnesses we have so far, and we're pretty sure if the rest come in, it'll be even more damning. Um, But then Chuck Schumer arraigned on the parade by dragging it out until almost 2 o'clock this morning with procedural votes that even Dianne Feinstein was taking breaks and going out and saying, "Uh, we need to stop this because we're going to lose. We'd like to go home tonight. We'd actually like to have this trial. It was ridiculous, and it ended up with the uh, Democrats on the floor manager side getting snippy with the president's team, which caused John Roberts, chief justice of the United States, a designated hostage. Dude is not the designated survivor. He is the designated hostage, and he looked like it half the day, like, oh, my. You, you know, who was the admiral who ran with Ross Perot? Um, who am I? Why am I here? That that looked like John Roberts was sitting there the whole time, like, God, what have I done to deserve this punishment? Forgive me. But he ended the night uh, this way. I think it is appropriate at this point for me to admonish uh both the House managers and the President's counsel in equal terms uh, to remember that they are addressing the world's greatest deliberative body. One reason it has earned that title is because its members avoid speaking in a manner and using language that is not conducive to civil discourse. Um, In the 1905 Swain trial, a senator objected when one of the managers used the word pettifogging and the presiding officer said the word ought not to have been used. I don't think we need to aspire to that highest standard, but I do think those addressing the Senate should remember where they are. Now, what started this was Jerry Nadler was starting to lose it through the day. He got really upset that the Senate Republicans wanted to essentially build off the Clinton impeachment precedent. He's like, I don't know why we got to deal with the Clinton impeachment precedent, because you... I realize, Jerry Nadler, that you're in the House of Representatives. And in Congress, the Democrats are the opposition, but the Senate is the enemy, or the Republicans are the opposition, and the Senate is the enemy. The Senate actually is a group of adults, and they're run on precedent. And when the Senate does things, unlike the House of Representatives, when the Senate does stuff, they build off existing precedent. Why? Because the Senate is perceived to be or is run as a body that is in continuous operation. That is why you rarely see major rules changes in the Senate. And it requires typically a two-thirds vote or a nuclear deployment of of an option to get around that two-thirds requirement because the Senate is perceived to be continuing. Why? Because only a third of the Senate is up for re-election every two years. It provides a level of stability and maturity to the body uh, that they take great 
great pride in. All of the senators uh, on the Republican and the Democratic side take great pride in it. It is notable that you get Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, and Bernie Sanders out of the campaign and say, yeah, we're going to get rid of the MP. We're going to get rid of the filibuster. The, the Senate's a useless institution. And then they get in the Senate and they're like, I do declare I'm going to filibuster under rule three of the United States because they're senators and they love this. They love the fact that there are two from every state. They may get on the campaign trail and demagogue their institution because they're politicians, many blood-sucking creatures, but when they get back to Washington, D.C., inside the Senate, they're senators. If those jokers could show up in white toga robes, they would do it. We would just all laugh at them, so they don't. Now, uh, again, Chief Justice Roberts was laughing about all of this, or I shouldn't say laughing about it. He was admonishing both sides because Jerry Nadler started a fight. The House guys responded. It got a little ugly. Well, here comes, what is what the hell is happening to CNN? I worked for CNN for three years. I've got a lot of friends at CNN, and privately, even a lot of the reporters are grousing about the direction Jeffrey uh, Jeff Zuckerberg is taking. Not Zuckerberg, Jeff Zucker is taking it, uh, and and the reason that they're grousing about it is because CNN had always prided itself in being the very objective news network. I will tell you, I got hired at CNN when Lou Dobbs's show was coming to an end, and people in the building were celebrating that Lou Dobbs's show was coming to an end, not because they were left of center, but because the people at CNN were like, we can find finally be a true objective news network. We can finally be what we wanted to be while Lou isn't here with his clown show partisan stuff. We can finally do We don't have Crossfire. We don't have Lou Dobbs. We're a straight news organization. And now they keep hiring all these left-wing flacks. Uh, John Harwood from CNBC, who's a left-wing partisan talking point machine, has now been hired. It's ridiculous. Uh, so, uh, we've, we've now got Joe Lockhart, President Clinton's uh, former press secretary, trying to explain what the chief justice was doing, that really it was about the Republicans. Even anyone who watched it, it was clear it was Jerry Nadler set off the chief justice. And even the people on CNN aren't having, having Joe Lockhart's nonsense. Joe, what struck you from yesterday? Well, I thought that uh, uh, the chief justice's uh, comments were aspirational. Uh, because they are not living up to this. I, you, you have two sides talking past each other. The Democrats are focused on the evidence, what happened, the gravity of the situations. The Republicans are sitting trying to, to provide sound bites for Sean Hannity, Laura mm -hmm. Ingram, and Tucker Carlson. That's all they're trying to do. It's what they did in the House. And I think while the Chief Justice said in equal parts, he was not really speaking to the House managers. Mm -hmm. He was speaking to uh, the president's legal. You don't team. think that he was talking yeah. to Jerry, to Jerry uh, Maybe. Nadler about using the term cover up and what? I, well, then he's going to admonish him many more times because the Democrats are going to use that phrase. Joe, what's? <laughs> yes. You don't think he was, he was going after Jerry Nadler? Of course he was going after Jerry Nadler. OK. And, and by the way, I want to set the stage here. This is CNN. You've got John Avalon. Here, you've got John Berman and Allison Camerata. Uh, I, I know them both, by the way, good people. I, I know John Avalon as well. Uh, he and I disagree on a lot of stuff, but he's, he's, he's not a bad guy. And he's definitely, though, center left in his worldview. And you've got Joe Lockhart. So you've got two anchors, uh, neither of whom are really friendly to the GOP side. They're, they're nice people, but neither of whom are really friendly to the GOP side. You've got John Avalon there as kind of the, the playing adult in the room to Joe Lockhart. Where's the balance in this conversation? How do you bring out Joe Lockhart, President Clinton's former press secretary, and allow him to do this? You know, Thankfully, you got the anchors pushing back. You know, on occasion, I'll, I'll tell you. 
when I was at CNN, one of the, the things that I like to do the most, largely because I just hate everybody in politics, is uh, they would bring me out, uh, typically it'd be with Anderson Cooper or with John King or with Blitzer, and we would have a five to seven minute conversation about the, what's the problems within the Republican Party itself. And there was no need to have a Democrat in this conversation because you're focused solely on on the Republican side. In the same way, if you were having a conversation about the Democratic side, there's no need to have a Republican in there talking about what's the internal politics in the Democratic side now, because they're not in that fight. And we would have a great conversation and there would be pushback and there would be uh, intellectual honesty expected on both sides. And they were good conversations. But if I was ever in a conversation and it was about uh, our R versus D, there was always a Democrat. And oftentimes it would be me the versus the anchor and two other people. And I was fine with that, a, a, a missionary try, trying to lure people to my side. I, I was totally down with that. I enjoyed it. But I look at this. You've got Allison Cameron and, and John Berman. They are fine and decent people. I like them both. They are not friendly to the Trump administration. They've been uh, openly hostile to a lot of it. You've got John Avalon, who's in that boat as well. And then you've got Joe Lockhart. Where's the balance on this panel? At least they were good enough to push back. And, and that's why I respect all of them. Even when we disagree on politics, they're willing to push back when they've just got one Democrat on the panel. Or if they had just one Republican on the panel, they'd be pushing back, probably even more so pushing back. But I, I'm struck by the way CNN is deciding they want to be the, the, the smart man's MSNBC, which has no market share whatsoever. And that's what we are to expect when we have coverage of impeachment uh, in uh, on TV networks these days. Uh, you know, if I could get a network, in all honesty, seriously, if I could get a network that had Bill Himmer, Martha McCallum, uh, Brett Baer, uh, Jake Tapper, Whoop Blitzer, John King, uh, I I would be in heaven. It would be the, we call it the Straight News Network, SNN, the Straight News Network. Because you would you would get a, a balance of known personalities, you would get some level of respect, and you would actually get a, a pretty decent job of people committed to actually straight news. Now, and you can quibble with the details. I know there are people, oh, Wolf Blitzer, he's a liberal hack. He's really not. Um, and, and I get that. But, man, the way we're going with CNN, I mean, for example, CNN has hired Valerie Jarrett's daughter as an anchor. Do you really think you're going to get a fair and honest depiction of what's happening on the with the Republicans from Valerie Jarrett's daughter or, or Jim Scudo or whatever his name is? who was in the Obama administration, is now an anchor at CNN. Do you really think, in fact, you, you know, there, there are plenty of examples of that. And so we're getting all of this layered on top of commentary about impeachment. I'm going to take a timeout. I am happy to take your phone calls on this. 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. When we come back, I will be able to do it in the five minutes I will have on the other side of this break or whatever it is. I am going to lay out for you precisely what happened on the first real day of the Senate impeachment trial from the vantage point of hate them all, don't believe any of them, and you will probably come away with a realistic view of what's going on. Just a reminder, if you text the word impeachment to 52886, you'll be connected to the Eric Erickson Show and the Resurgent Action Center, where you'll be able to email, tweet, and call your senators telling them to uh, get just go on and stop this farcical impeachment trial. Let the voters decide in November. We're close to the election. Um, these people are clowns. Let let the voters decide this matter. Text the word impeachment to 52886. Now, your summation of the first full day of the impeachment trial from someone who hates them all. 
Chuck Schumer completely wasted the Senate's time with a series of motions. I think he made a terrible tactical strategic decision. He wanted to do witnesses and motions. Mitch McConnell already said that they weren't going to do this until after opening statements, but Schumer decided to make the fight anyway. He kept them there until almost two o'clock in the morning to the point that even Democratic senators like Dianne Feinstein were saying, this is ridiculous. We keep losing these things. Let's just go home, get it over with for the night. But no, 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 Schumer did it. It was a strategic mistake in that, like the game of whack-a-mole, uh, you know, if, if, where you, the little head pops up and you pound it with the little mallet. And if the head keeps popping up out of the same hole over and over and over and over, uh, you keep whacking that hole and then the, the, the mole pops up from a different hole while you're whacking the other hole. In the same way, Schumer just throwing these motions out and everybody, no, 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 no. Suddenly Schumer throws one out with a legitimate point. No, because people are used to doing it. It was a terrible strategic and tactical move. It made people mad and they just got in the habit of voting no. They didn't even want to consider it by the end of the night. Uh, and they sailed through the John Bolton one with the rest of them. Now, it'll come back after the opening statements. Uh, the other thing that happened was I, I saw all my friends saying, oh, my gosh, Adam Adam Schiff, he's what an idiot, what a clown show. He's doing such a terrible job. I, I, I turned on to see just how horrible it was. And I thought, wait a second. Um, Schiff is actually making the case that based on the existing evidence and witnesses thus far, the president should be convicted and that if they bring in more witnesses, what they will see um, really will just... <laughs> Sorry, Senator just texted me. Um, well, it will it, if if they bring in more witnesses, all it will do is further the depth of knowledge to prove that the president should be convicted. But even without those additional witnesses, based on the witnesses they have and and the documents they have, it's clear the president should be convicted. That was Schiff's argument. And whether you agree with the argument or not, it was a sound, mature, and responsible argument. It was not the clown show that everyone is screaming about. And that's why I hate so much of the partisan BS commentary on this stuff. Is is you can't just objectively say, you know what? I disagree with him, but he did a good job. He he did a good job. I disagree with him. It's a clown show, and we should let the voters decide. On the Republican side, you had Pat Cipollone, the president's counsel, made some very good arguments. The problem was that a lot of the people around him, they were so busy making these process arguments about witnesses and stuff, they weren't prepared when the Democrats clearly changed their strategic tra trajectory with Schiff to make the case that the president should be impeached and convicted based on what they have already, uh, they they weren't prepared for that shift. And and so all they could do was they passive aggressive with these. Good Lord, it's like a, a, a well, I, I better not say that, but it is it was like a passive aggressive group of teenage girls in cliques on the floor of the Senate. And as for the senators themselves, they were trying not to fall asleep. I mean, that, that's your first day. John Roberts looked like he was in a hostage situation until he finally decided to lecture Jerry Nadler and the rest of them. These guys would come out, they would take breaks, they would yell about the other side, and no one's paying attention and no one cares. And here's the thing. Adam Schiff could stand on the floor of the Senate and make such a persuasive case that all of us would nod along with him, and it doesn't matter. They don't have the votes. The House of Representatives could not get even half of the retiring Republicans couldn't get 11 of them to go along with their impeachment. If you couldn't get half of those Republicans to go along with impeachment and these guys hate the president's guts, they're not going to get the Senate of the United States to go along with it. You're not going to get to a two thirds vote. What they're hoping for is to get four. And another thing I got to, I got to give a, a shout out to the con artists on MSNBC. 
the number of people on MSNBC uh, suffering priapism yesterday on the idea that you were going to get four Republicans to have a revolt against Mitch McConnell was astonishing. It was absolutely astonishing. (gasps) They're going to get four. It's amazing. You had you had people with with, with tingly in in their pants, and they didn't even understand what was going on. Who were convinced they were going to get four Republicans to side with Chuck Schumer against Mitch McConnell on procedural votes that will change nothing. They had half of progressive Twitter and social media yesterday was convinced there was going to be a rebellion against Mitch McConnell. They were watching the trial for this rebellion to happen, and it never happened. What a bunch of liars on TV! People who have no idea what's going on trying to appear educated about a process. What a bunch of horse manure. You come away dumber from watching these pundits on TV talk about stuff they don't even understand. It's nuts. You know, I'm I'm very mindful that uh, while we are a a show expanding in Georgia, we've got impeachment happening this week. We also have the Georgia legislature meeting. And I'm trying to balance out the show, flipping back and forth between national content and local content. I really do want to talk about the legislature and what's going on. And I figure one of the great people uh, who runs a a great group who's worth getting on here to talk about what's happening in Georgia right now is uh, Joshua Edmonds from the uh, Georgia Life Alliance. Welcome to the program. How are you? Hey, Eric. I'm doing great. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thank you for taking time out of your busy day to do this with everything else going on. Uh, as I, I mentioned to you in email, I, I kind of wanted to get you guys lay the land first. If you would, uh, let everybody know about uh, what GLA does. Sure. So, I mean, first of all, whatever all of your listeners should know is that GLA, who is the state affiliate to National Right to Life, um, one of our founding members was yours truly, Eric Erickson. That fair. Um, yeah. you, you had a vision for building a pro-life culture in Georgia. You care about this state with your scope being so wide across the political sphere of the country. Your, your, your heart is here in Georgia, and, and you saw fit to, to help build this organization. So thank you for that. For You're the very welcome. Everything, everything we've done is built on that foundation, and, and a lot of what we've done has only been possible by the, the foundation you and, and our other founders helped lay back in 2014, 2015, um, but so what we do is, as Georgia Life Alliance is, is we sort of approach this pro-life issue holistically. Uh, we, we view that the sanctity of life is uh, not based around one piece of policy or one issue, but it's, it's, a, it's a spectrum of finding ways to respect and protect human dignity, whether it's for the baby in the womb through things like the heartbeat bill that uh, was passed and signed last year, uh, or up to defending those who are at the end of their life. Um, all the way to natural death, we've got a piece of policy right now in the legislature um, put up by the Senate Minority Leader, uh, Steve Henson, that would legalize assisted suicide in Georgia. And we're staunchly opposing that, and we'll be working hard to crush that in the coming days uh, so that never sees the light of day. And then we lead education efforts around the state, so helping to, to take not just policy items but educational elements to churches and youth groups and to GOP groups around our state so that our, our communities understand what it means to be pro-life and how they can do their part to build that pro-life culture in Georgia. Now, you mentioned the assisted suicide legislation. I was actually surprised when I saw that uh, come down the pike. I, I, I assumed eventually Georgia would, would get there with the Democrats. I just expected they, this would be their hill to die on this year with the, the minority leader in the Senate pushing this. Uh, what other big ticket items do you see in the legislature right now? Uh, obviously, adoption reform, I assume, is one y'all are paying attention to, but but what, what surprises are out there for us? 
Uh, I think that what the final picture of what adoption and foster reform ends up looking like here this year will be something for everyone to watch. I know the, the governor has rolled out a plan. Um, we've got a piece of legislation that we're, uh, we're working on right now that we're going to roll out in the coming days. I believe uh, the lieutenant governor's office has been working on uh, some policy as well, and there's going to be a task force um, that's going to help direct uh, Georgia's trajectory for the issue of foster and adoption reform over the next three years. Uh, and so it, it'll be great to see um, when that train reaches its final destination, uh, if it does, on what foster and adoption reform looks like for Georgia. Um, we were surprised to see the, the uh, assisted suicide bill come up. It, it comes up every couple of years. Uh, the last time we saw efforts to legalize euthanasia and assisted suicide was back in 2016, and we, we, we stopped that back then. And uh, I guess Steve Henson's last hoorah in the state Senate wants to be you know, trying to end the lives of the innocent and the vulnerable at the end of their lives, but that's not going to pass this year. Um, there's also going to be some some really interesting um, collaboration, I think, over this idea of reasonable accommodations for pregnant workers that we've been taking a look at throughout the off session uh, and seeing what we can do to, you know, now, now that we've, we've made this statement on the heartbeat bill that lives are precious and valuable in the womb and we value moms and babies equally, now, once mom is pregnant and, you know, abortion's off the table after six weeks, uh, how do we accommodate and, and respect her dignity as a pregnant person in Georgia? Uh, and there have been a lot of conversations about ways to, to sort of broaden that pro-life uh, tent to include those reasonable accommodations and ways we can respect life in uh, less conventional pro-life ways to, to really reinforce that pro-life culture. So it's going to be a very interesting session, I think. Yeah, I suspect so. I, I, I do have this sense from talking to members of the legislature and, and people close to both the governor and lieutenant governor that they would were, were headed into an election year. So outside of the budget, they would prefer to minimize any sort of major controversial things until next year, whether it's the film tax credit or, or uh, some of the, the other big fights on school choice and religious liberty and things. What, what sense are you getting? I think you're spot on. I think that, you know, every every other year we start looking towards November and thinking, you know, what what helps us most, what what hurts us least coming into the elections, especially when we've got, you know, what appears to be a very volatile metro uh, Atlanta area for um, Republicans. I think that we're going to see a lot of uh, a lot of folks during this session wanting to stay away from those controversial issues. I think that that. Um, that's going to help us champion foster adoption reform a lot more. That's going to be a very bipartisan effort. I think reasonable accommodations for pregnant workers will be something that will be a bipartisan champion issue. We've got an, another bill called Simon's Law that we're working on that protects parental rights and protects uh, minor patients who've got uh, critical injuries and critical illnesses from having do not resuscitate orders placed on their file without parental consent. Um, that'll become a bipartisan champion issue. Um, and so these every other year, you know, a, a lot of folks feel the uh, the exhaustion of oh, we're you know, all we're going to do is the happy-go-lucky, pat yourselves on the, on the back, and and go towards November, you know, trying not to make anyone angry. But it really does help some of these common sense pro-life efforts that that GLA puts forward and, and build a lot of consensus around it and help push that across the finish line. But yeah, I, I wouldn't expect to see. You know, there there won't be another heartbeat bill esque effort right. this year. I don't imagine. <laughs> yeah, no no major religious liberty fights either, or e even the the faith based protections in in adoption foster care. I suspect. Uh, now, uh, th first, thanks very much. Uh, it, those of you just tuning in, it, this is Josh Edmonds. I'm talking with Georgia Life Alliance. Now, if somebody wanted to get involved with GLA, uh, what would they do? 
So there's a couple of ways that a lot of folks uh, love to get involved. And one of those is, you know, especially during the legislative session, getting involved in our, our political advocacy. Um, we're down at the Capitol every day during session. Uh, we're meeting with members, building consensus, building coalitions, working on policy. So you can join us down at the Capitol. Um, and you can do that by going to our website, georgialifealliance.com, or to our Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash georgialife, and uh, message us and coordinate a time to come down. Uh, you can also volunteer uh, at one of our events um, as well by going to our website or social media and reaching out via email or message. We have our, our big pro-life lobby day coming up on February the 10th uh, down at the state capitol. Uh, Rules Chairman Jeff Mullis is sponsoring us uh, down at Room 450 in the Capitol from 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. on February the 10th. So we're going to go down, train average citizens on um, how to be engaged in the political process, and then shepherd them through what it looks like to be a citizen lobbyist. A lot of people love getting involved that way. You can also bring us into your churches. Um, that's a big focus for us is helping to bring the gospel of the sanctity of life to our pulpits and helping uh, train and equip our churches to have being pro-life. Uh, written into their, into their DNA. So that's a huge volunteer effort is helping to coordinate the churches or coming to your church and uh, making pro-life a part of your um, your church's priority list. And again, that'd be going to georgialifealliance.com or facebook.com slash georgialife and reaching out to us and, and helping us coordinate that with you. Hey, last question for you. Um, in the March for Life is coming up. We, we had the huge rally in Virginia last week. And of course, the media uh, stopped covering it when nothing happened. They give all sorts of coverage to, to the Women's March. I, I was really, really proud. My 14-year-old daughter asked if she could participate in the March for Life here in Macon, uh, where, where I am, the, this coming Friday. And uh, what, what, what involvement are you guys going to have, if any, with March for Life activities coming up? So what I've noticed over the past, you know, eight to 10 months going around the state after the Harpy Field meeting with a lot of communities and speaking to, you know, GOP groups and, and churches is that there's a lot of local marches for life that are happening. Um, Macon's got theirs. There's one, there's going to be one in the Augusta area. There's one in Columbus area. I heard one done in way South Georgia and the Valdosta area that's happening for the first time uh, this year. Um, so we're trying to help support uh, those local groups who are starting up uh, marches for life, maybe for the first time. Uh, because it's hard for them to make a drive to Atlanta or hard for them to get up to D.C. Um, we think that our communities are strongest when they're active, and you can do that best right at home. So we're helping to support a lot of local marches for life. Um, we've also been helping to coordinate people getting up to D.C. Um, with Students for Life and, and folks like that. And then we're also – there's um, there'll probably be some sort of activity uh, from the, the current presidential administration on Friday talking about pro-life efforts moving forward. Um, that I think will be tied to the March for Life, and and uh, and we'll be a part of that if it happens on Friday. Um, so we're we're helping to encourage people to just get involved in your local community. If there's not a March for Life, start one. Uh, you know, it doesn't have to be a big affair. Just get your church together, rally around your pregnancy resource center in the community, and and stand up and, and make your voice heard. Fantastic, Josh. Thanks so much. Uh, glad glad to put a spotlight on Georgia Life Alliance and and the policy initiatives you guys are helping push. Thank you. Now, thank you, Eric. Appreciate all that you do. Absolutely. Josh Edmonds, uh, Georgia Life Alliance. Uh, you can go to georgialifealliance.org uh, or .com or facebook.com slash Georgia Life. Uh, great, great group. Yeah, I did. I wasn't going to mention it, but, you know, several. So we've there's a there's a group in Georgia. It's a pro-life group that takes such a hard line on everything that it can't get anything done. Uh, it can't move the ball down the field because it expects to to run the whole distance. And if it can't run the whole distance, it won't run at all. 
and groups like that very much frustrate me. Uh, for example, the the other pro-life group in the state opposed the fetal heartbeat legislation. And you know, what was so galling actually is that the other group fundraised off of the fetal heartbeat legislation. They actually did. And Josh is too good a guy to raise this issue, but man, it made me mad um, that you have a pro-life group in the state of Georgia that opposed the pro-life legislation. Do you know why they oppose the pro-life legislation? Because the uh, rape exception in the law, the the governor and the legislative body, uh, the legislators could not get it passed unless they included an an exception for rape in the uh, fetal heartbeat legislation. There was no way to get it passed. And so the question was, do you get it passed or do you not? Do you pass a fetal heartbeat legislation that has an exception for rape or do you just not get a fetal heartbeat legislation passed at all? And they decided it was better to do it than to to not do it. And this other pro-life group opposed it. And then when it was passed, had the audacity to fundraise off of it being passed. And it was that this is the same group that years ago, uh, Congress drafted a uh, pro-life measure to prohibit abortion after 20 weeks. It was the fetal pain bill. And there was an exception to get Republican women votes in the House of Representatives There was an exception for rape, Uh, rape, incest, and life of the mother were included in there. And they wanted uh, either no exceptions or just life of the mother, but they did not want the rape exception or the incest or, or anything like that. And so they opposed the legislation. They actually opposed legislation that would prohibit abortions after 20 weeks because it contained some exceptions. And that was that was too much for me. They were attacking good Republican members of Congress who were advancing pro-life measure because it wasn't a hundred percent. It was eighty percent, not a hundred percent, so it wasn't good enough. Uh, they also have opposed a twenty-week bill in the past because it uh, would have prohibit would not have prohibited abortions in the first twenty weeks. And that I'm not making up. This is a pro-life group that opposed a measure to ban abortions at 20 weeks because it would have allowed them for the first 20 weeks. And so they put, and I just said, you know what? We got to, we got to have a new pro-life group in the state. One that actually is willing to advance the pro-life agenda and, and not just, just drag down good Republicans who are willing to support a culture of life and do it in an incremental way and show people, you know, we've done 20 weeks. Now let's do 19. Now let's do 18. Now let's do 17. Nope, nope, nope. And so I helped start the Georgia Life Alliance because I I wanted a pro-life group in Georgia that actually puts points on the board uh, as opposed to taking players off the field. And uh, that's why the Georgia Life Alliance exists. It is a great organization. They do a great job of passing and advancing pro-life legislation. They will be on the field opposing the assisted suicide legislation of the Georgia legislature, which is a good job. And they will be advancing adoption legislation in the state of Georgia. Uh, so if you want to find out more, Georgia Life Alliance is their name. Google, go to facebook.com slash Georgia Life, go to georgialifealliance.com. Uh, and also the March for Life is coming up. There's one I know here in Macon where I am, there's a big one on Friday. Uh, my kid's going to it, I do believe. Uh, if her mother will let her skip school, I'll be in LA for HBO. Um, in any event, uh, now... 
having, again, I'm balancing. We've done impeachment. We've done Georgia. We need to go back to Washington, D.C. and the other news of the day. I do want to bring you up to speed on the coronavirus as well. The United States has its first case of the Wuhan, Wuhan flu which is apparently a highly contagious coronavirus uh, that jumped from animals to humans in China and is now starting its global spread. It has come to our shore, and I will tell you what I know when we come back. Can we all commit to praying for the TV news anchors who are forced to sit with some of the dumbest people to have ever existed on national television? Listen, I was a talking head on TV for CNN and for Fox and now do it freelance, as a matter of fact. In fact, I'll be on uh, Real Time with Bill Maher on HBO on Friday. I'm, Alan Sanders will be filling in for me on Friday. Uh, while I go out there, I do it a couple times a year. And I, I, I understand when... So here's what typically happens. For your standard TV talking show, uh, what happens is they send you a briefing packet of all the stories they want to talk about, so you've got time to try to make up your mind. Uh, both when I was at CNN and at Fox, they would send a, a copious notes and articles and links, and you could or could not choose to read all that stuff. Uh, typically, they would send me a driver until I had a TV studio built into my house, and I would drive back and forth to Atlanta. Uh, they would send me a car service, and I would sit in the back seat and read all the documents on the way up there. Uh, get on my cell phone or, or my iPad and, and start Googling and searching and researching. And I was highly informed when I sat down. The problem is that uh, when you get to impeachment, you're kind of playing off what's happening on TV, and it's so dadgum boring, you tune it all out. And this has only happened once in modern American history. And because it's only happened once in modern American history... People really don't know what's going on. This is why precedent matters. This is why uh, Jerry Nadler complaining about the Clinton impeachment stuff. Uh, Clinton impeachment precedent is so mind-numbing. He doesn't understand that the Senate bases itself on precedent, and it has to even more so now because the this is only the second time in, in modern history it's happened, and only the third time overall that we've had a presidential impeachment. Sure, there have been 68 impeachments, but not of the president, uh, not with Chief Justice presiding. That's only happened three times. Speaking of, poor old John Roberts, he's presiding over the Supreme Court this morning, starting in five minutes at 10 o'clock. Uh, he'll preside on the, over the Supreme Court until it wraps its uh, arguments at 12. He'll have an hour to eat, refresh, get caffeinated, go to the Senate where he'll preside starting at one o'clock. That will run until probably seven o'clock tonight. He was there until after two o'clock in the morning this morning. Thankfully, he got a car service and security to take him home. He can sleep in the car on the way home. It's crazy. But you got these talking heads on TV who are trying to watch this stuff. They tune out on it. They're busy playing games on their phone. Yes, they play games on their phone. I know it because I've sat there on TV with these people who are playing Bejeweled and Tetris and whatnot, cheap versions of Tetris on their phone. Uh, I did it too. I know these things. And you're watching this stuff and you're trying to sound educated and you say some of the most supremely stupid stuff that's ever come out of people's mouths on television. And the poor news anchors are sitting there trying to ask you intelligent questions and they're just, you get dumb stuff. I mean, like Andrew McCabe, who has no business being on television, but CNN trying to be MSNBC, the poor man's version of MSNBC, has him on, and this is his genius moment. Such a tantalizing offer, right? Because you know the president of all people, he is not the 
type of guy who wants to turn down a challenge. You know he'd feel some very strong motivation to come in there and, and duke it out with them. Probably be a terrible, terrible mistake, but my guess is initially he'd want to do it. I think one of the things we can't emphasize enough is that lunch that Phil just told us about, where some Republicans pushed back on McConnell's resolution. That is the first small but first crack in the Republican wall that the Democrats have seen since this entire thing began. So I actually believe that some of what you're seeing now with the insistence on dragging every amendment out, using the entire hour of argument for every amendment, this is the Democrats' way of putting additional pressure on that small handful of Republicans who might be inclined to lean in the direction of fairness and transparency and putting on a real trial. That's... We're all dumber for having just listened to that. We are all dumber for having to be subjected to that bit of analysis. Do you know why Chuck Schumer dragged this out with full debates? Because he wanted to make it painful on the Republicans. Not not because he was expecting to pick off Susan Collins, but because he wanted to make it painful. It's what the minority does in the city. It's what the Republicans did. It's what the Democrats do. They want to make it painful. They knew they were going to lose. Even Dianne Feinstein was telling reporters they needed to wrap it up. She was ready to go home. I mean, they made her mad. I, I'm, I'm texting during commercial breaks with a sitting member of the Senate who says that my, my running commentary is the only thing keeping him sane because he's laughing through how how I'm I'm ridiculing all sides. And he says, I have no idea what uh, Schumer accomplished other than making people mad. I said, well, he pissed off Diane Feinstein. <laughs> he says, oh, he did that for sure. <laughs> She's livid. It has nothing to do with trying to break the wall. It has nothing to do with persuading Susan Collins. It has to do with the maximum pain for the Republicans if they're going to vote no on all this stuff. That's what it was. Uh, and you don't have to be a genius to know that, but I guess you got to be out of your bubble, um, the, the McCabe bubble. And, you know, MSNBC is peddling this nonsense as well, that, oh, there's going to be cracks. I, I want to explain the cracks when we come back. But before I do any of that, I want to bring you up to speed on the coronavirus, which is actually a bigger news story out there in the nation than impeachment. I'm tangled in my cords, folks. <laughs> Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number. Look, if you got questions about impeachment and whatnot, I am happy to take your calls. I, I really am. The phone number 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Thanks, by the way, to everyone who submitted a restaurant recommendation. Uh, we got restaurant recommendations going all the way up to Lake Lanier down to way south Georgia. Uh, and uh, my, my wife and her uh, Harley owner group. Uh, they want to ride their motorcycles to, to, uh, small restaurants around the state. And, and well, y'all, y'all came through. I appreciate it. At the bottom of the hour, Stephen Groves is going to join me. He's special assistant to the president, deputy white house press secretary. We're going to talk about the impeachment clown show that is going on in Washington. I'm, I'm getting real time text messages from several members of the Senate and they are hysterical. Uh, apparently what I wrote this morning over at the research <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm guessing they're all re- it, it makes me feel loved that they're all reading it. I, so I, I wrote, I'll just read you the title and that'll put the perspective on it of how I feel about this stuff. Um, it's, you can go to the resurgent.com and see it yourself. And the, the, the title of the piece is your guide to yesterday's impeachment hearing for when you hate them all. 
Uh, the, the, the summary of it is there are not enough votes to get the president convicted, and again, he should not be. The House failed to build a persuasive case, and it is not the Senate's job to help the House in this. There were 21 Republicans in the House, half of whom hate the president's guts, who are leaving and no longer in need of Trump voter support. The House Democrats couldn't get those guys. They sure as hell won't get two-thirds of the Senate. The end. Uh, that's it. Uh, this is all a clown show. And um, we... <laughs> We'll delve into this further, but I, we need to talk about the coronavirus first. Uh, to put the the coronavirus, a, a coronavirus, a, you've heard of bird flu and a swine flu. You've heard of SARS, uh, the, the bird flu, SARS, and uh, now the coronavirus have all come through China. They've all come out of China. And... It, the latest is they're calling it the Wuhan flu or the Wuhan pneumonia. It's pneumonia and flu-like symptoms uh, coming from Wuhan, which is a city in central China. Um, it is, well, I shouldn't say, yeah, it, it's, it's south central China. It is due west of Shanghai. If you know where Shanghai is, it is due west of Shanghai. Um, basically, if you want this in real perspective, if you were to go straight across on the map from L.A. to China, you would basically eventually get to Wuhan. Uh, it is a city of 10 million people on the Yangtze River. And there is a famous, famous fish market in Wuhan. And dozens of people started getting this illness from there. They believe it was animals. Uh, that infected the people, and then the people started infecting the other people. It's like one of the, those nightmare uh, World War Z movies beginning. There have been multiple conflicting press reports, and you do need to know they're conflicting press reports, but it does appear to be legit that people are not allowed out of Wuhan right now. Uh, you can't get in and you can't get out. And that's troubling because the Chinese authorities, and you got to remember the Chinese authorities, they're a bunch of commies. So they're a bunch of liars and they are saying only 300 people have been infected. But if you've got a city of 10 million people and no one's allowed to leave, that suggests the number is actually higher than 300. The whatever the disease is, is so contagious that it has now spread already to South Korea, Japan, uh, Taiwan and Hong Kong. And from there, it is spreading uh, into Thailand and Vietnam are now reporting cases of the Wuhan flu. And now there is one case in the United States. That case is in uh, Washington state. And the person who has it was in Wuhan and began to get symptoms and reported to the hospital and told them he had been in Wuhan. He had enough sense to know he needed to go. And they have put him in isolation. There is an, an isolation containment system that they have him in. The CDC is now uh, aggressively getting involved in this. There are no reports of other cases. The doctors and nurses who first came into contact with this person are also in isolation, making sure they don't develop symptoms. The symptoms are flu-like and begin with a fever. And so now Atlanta, Georgia is uh, one of the places the CDC is set up. Now the CDC is headquartered in Atlanta, but they're making uh, Two Dead Mares International Airport a base of operations to deal with Wuhan uh, flu. Uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and JFK all have regular incoming flights uh, to Shanghai. 
they were the initial bases of operation for setting up CDC rapid deployment centers where they could do uh, health inspections of people coming in from uh, Asia, not just China, uh, but from Asia. Atlanta has been expanded because Delta has a flight uh, going in and out of Shanghai. What they do, I am told from people familiar with the process, is that as people come off the plane, they first ask for anyone who has symptoms, who doesn't feel well, to see them. But as you make your way down the line, they have thermometers and laser thermometers that they scan everybody with. Every single person gets their temperature taken if you're coming in from Shanghai. If you have fever, you and everyone on the plane who was around you is detained and checked for symptoms. It's not just you. It doesn't impact just you. It impacts every single person around you. And uh, you could be detained and you could be immediately taken into a quarantine facility uh, to make sure you are not spreading the Wuhan flu into the United States. And by the way, um, while they're, they're, they've got good bedside manner, you don't have a choice. They don't care if you're an American or not. Uh, when you come in from China on these flights into uh, Hartsfield or O'Hare or JFK or LAX or San Francisco, and you got flu-like symptoms, you don't feel well, or you've got fever, you don't have a choice. You are getting quarantined, and they're going to check to make sure it's not the Wuhan flu. That is how they're largely trying to keep it out of the country. Also, ports will be affected. Uh, LAX, in particular, the Los Angeles port system, gets a ton of people coming in from China, lots of cargo from China. They will be impacted. They will be looking into the issue. They will be trying to contain it uh, there as well. It actually is a very big deal because this uh, Wuhan flu, as they're calling it, or Wuhan pneumonia, I I've heard both terms, I think, right now because Wuhan flu is shorter. That's what they're using because the press, you know, so social media, if, you if you've never used Twitter, you're limited to, what, 240 characters? And so if you type out Wuhan pneumonia, that's more characters than Wuhan flu. So a lot of the media is shortening it, calling the Wuhan flu so they can put it on Twitter and add more information uh, with characters. Believe it or not, that's actually why it's being done. Uh, so you got the Wuhan flu situation, highly contagious. Uh, people are very nervous about it. It's nothing that we in this country need to worry about. The president actually spoke about this uh, and said he does believe it has been contained. And the president actually has said a lot of things, but here he is on this coronavirus uh, from Davos, where he is in Davos, Switzerland. A, uh, the CDC uh, has identified a case of coronavirus uh, in Washington state, the Wuhan strain of this. Um, if you remember SARS, that affected GDP, travel-related effects. Um, do you have you been briefed by the CDC? I have, Are the words about a pandemic at this point? No, we're not at all, and uh, we're we have it totally under control. It's one person coming in from China, and we have it under control. It's uh, going to be just fine. Going to be just fine. No reason to panic. Now, there's a political angle on this I want to bring up that actually affected me directly. Uh, and some of you know the the Southern Baptist writer and teacher Beth Moore. It affected her. I don't know that Beth knows. I think I told Beth. Uh, so remember the Ebola, uh, the doctor who was treated by the CDC in Atlanta with Ebola. He had come in from uh, West Africa where he had been fighting Ebola. He had contracted it. They used an experimental treatment on this doctor and he was in the CDC for a while. He And he recovered. 
He's he's had some effects, memory loss and other things, uh, but he's he's recovered. There have been a couple of cases. They all came through. They were treated in isolation at the CDC, and there was just panic that Atlanta was going to have uh, going to have a mass outbreak of of Ebola. Now, I realize this is my day job, but believe it or not, uh, I, I don't actually make a penny from this radio program. Hey, if you want to advertise, come see me. I, I, I need to get my advertisers up so I can actually earn an income from this. My, my, my actual paying day job is I handle Atlanta's evening news on WSB radio in Atlanta. And because of that, I was targeted by the Russian trolls. If you'll recall, there was a story in the New York Times several years ago. It was in 2016 about the Russian troll factory where the Russians actually have people on social media. They pose as Americans. They have a bunch of of, uh, inactive Twitter accounts. And as they need them, they turn on these Twitter accounts. They look like they're Americans. They built up social media profiles. They've added pictures to make it look like they're Americans. They, They try to look legit. And when... The doctor came over from Africa to the CDC and was held in isolation. Some of their accounts became active, including some that started to, that changed their username to put Ebola in the username. And one of them was Ebola ATL and then a string of numbers. And Beth Moore, the Southern Baptist uh, teacher, who is just a, a wonderful, wonderful lady, she and I were actually having an uh, exchange on Twitter about, of all things, you will not be surprised if you know either one of us, about a recipe. And the Ebola ATL account tweeted into that conversation to let me know that uh, Ebola had been, uh, Ebola had escaped from the CDC facility, that one person, I think it was at Linux Mall or some such, had been infected uh, and the CDC was trying to contain it. I, I forget all the details. It's been a while, and I've only seen that tweet a couple of times. Uh, but the, when the Mueller investigators, if you'll recall, they released the database of all of the Russian troll accounts, and you could search to see if you were ever mentioned or had you ever retweeted or been tweeted at by one of those accounts. And sure enough, uh, Beth Moore and I had gotten dragged into this uh, by this Ebola ATL uh, Twitter account. And they were trying to stir up fear. And and some of those accounts still exist, by the way. There are still people. I get emails uh, at the show every once in a while from random accounts that want me to know that Ebola is in the United States and that the government's covering it up. And they're all Russian troll accounts. You and I both know that the Russians are probably right now firing up Twitter accounts. Considering they did that with Ebola in Atlanta, they've got to be doing it with this Wuhan flu. There is going to be a disinformation campaign on social media. I guarantee you, you're going to start seeing people on Facebook start circulating rumors, uh, Infowars-like rumors that the Wuhan flu is actually spread in the United States, that people are being rounded up and detained in FEMA internment camps, no doubt. You're going to find it happening in Atlanta because the CDC is in Atlanta. You're going to find it happening all through Georgia. I, I just, I'm... I feel very strongly that this is going to to do this. That these Russian trolls are going to try to scare us with this Wuhan flu. 
and that a lot of the information that's out there isn't going to be legit. Uh, because if they did it with Ebola, they're going to do it with this because we got an election coming up. They did it in 2016. It was kind of a mass panic to try to get people to revolt against the Obama administration and go with Trump. And now they're out to get Trump because the president's actually been pretty hard on the Russians, contrary to what the media would have you believe. The president's been very hard on the Russians. They're also the Chinese who, ha- who don't like him. And I guarantee you there's going to be a disinformation campaign that there's a mass outbreak of the Wuhan flu in the United States. And it's all Donald Trump's fault. And I wonder if the media will be as aggressive and pushing back with when that happens, as they were uh, when the Russian trolls were going after the Obama administration for Ebola. I'm not holding my breath on that point. The The main point, though, is that be very, very careful over the next few weeks about any reports you hear of, of a mass outbreak of this coronavirus in the United States. Because if you're reading it on social media and you're not hearing it in the news, you're probably, it's probably not a cover-up. It is probably just one of these uh, Russian troll or Chinese troll accounts doing it. And, and to their credit, I do have to say, to their credit, the American media in 2016 was actually very good about not spreading these things. And they were all, tar- it wasn't just me and it wasn't Beth Moore who was targeted. And she was only targeted incidentally because I was texting with her and, and this account was trying to get my attention while they clearly knew I was on, on Twitter talking with Beth about this recipe. Uh, you're you're going to find this happening on Facebook and Twitter and be careful about it. And frankly, uh, just ask yourself, if this was true, wouldn't the media be blowing this up to make the president look bad? And so if it's not in the New York Times and the like, then by God, uh, it probably isn't true. And I suspect there's going to be a lot of fear mongering and not a lot of truth to the fear. Cute video circulating from the New York Post of a dog doing burpees with it. So it's just adorable. <laughs> a CrossFit gym. Uh, welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. You, you know, I'm mindful of the joke. A, a, a CrossFitter, a vegan, and an atheist walked into a bar. The only reason we know is because they couldn't shut up about it. Um, I, I have... In the last three months, there's a there's a CrossFit facility near my house. Uh, those of you familiar with Macon and the new mall, we call it, the on uh, River Crossing or whatever, right over there, there's this place, the Tao Training Facility. It used to be CrossFit Tao, T-A-O. And I have been going there now for three months. Now, I pay extra because nobody wants to see my fat behind working out in a CrossFit gym doing burpees. I pay extra for the one-on-one training so I don't have to see other people and they can't see me do it. Uh, but, man, I am down 14 pounds and it's I haven't even really worked on my diet. And I just I, I feel better than I have. You know, I had a, a lung issue several years ago. And it has taken me this long to be able to get my lung capacity back to even go to a a gym and and push myself hard. And I was going to a great trainer in town. And man, I love the guy, uh, my buddy Jeff. And uh, he, my schedule is just so incompatible with life right now. I'm on radio nine to noon and then four to six and, and have to squeeze stuff in in the afternoon. So um, this has been great for me and, and it is good. And I try not to tell anybody because the moment I say CrossFit, people are like, oh, you're going to tell us about CrossFit all the time. No, what I'm actually going to do at this very moment is tell you that this hour of the show, in fact, the entire show today is brought to you by Dynamic Money. You heard the Chris Burns ad. Um, Chris actually is a friend. Uh, he actually really is a friend. In fact, uh, he's going to go with me to, to uh, out west this weekend and uh, hang out and, and be go to TV with me. Um, he's a good dude and he is my wife's and my financial planner. 
and we wound up needing one. You know, I used to be really, really good at balancing the books, and, and I kept detail. I used Quicken, and I mean, every day our checkbook was balanced to the penny, and over time, I not only did I lose the capacity to do that, but I lost the capacity to set a family budget, and we got behind, and then with my wife's health and mine, we had uh, medical bill debt, and we got behind on credit card. It was just, it was a mess. Um, a, a debt mess and I needed to come up with solutions and I'm just beyond my capacity to deal with that. And we were headed to uh, do the Dave Ramsey program. We really were. We'd looked into it. We'd met with friends. We were going to go pay for it. And uh, then several people said, you should meet Chris. And I did. And, and we just became fast friends. And he's like, you know what? I can do this for you. And my, I travel so much. I actually need a credit card. And, and the other model is very hostile to credit cards. And Chris has been able to get us on a, on a financial plan. And the thing that I love with dynamic money is that they are not commissions based. So when he tells me I need something, he's not getting a commission off of it. Uh, the best way to think about what dynamic money is, if you're interested in using Chris, it, the website is dynamicmoney.com. And the way I try to explain it to friends of mine is he's like a primary care physician. You go in, he diagnoses your problems, he comes up with a, a plan for you, and then he gets your your life insurance guy to talk with your mortgage guy, to talk with your lawyer, to talk with your estate planning guy, to talk with your investment guy. He doesn't even handle your investments unless you want him to. If you got an investment guy already doing your investments, he'll deal with them. If you want him to manage your accounts, he'll deal with it, um, but he doesn't make a commission. It's, it's all flat fee, so I don't feel like I'm getting advice that makes him money. He's actually giving me advice that he thinks is best for me. So I, I can't recommend dynamic money enough. It, it is a very personal endorsement because he has helped Christy. We've got all of our credit. We came up with a game plan. We paid off all of our credit cards. Uh, and it's been tremendous to just watch now our, our uh, money grow again. So I, this is way longer than I wanted, but I, I really am in debt to him because he got me out of debt. So dynamicmoney.com is his website if you want to take advantage of, of Chris's team services. They're good people. Uh, when we come back, Stephen Grobes is going to join me. He is with the White House. He's a special assistant to the president. He's the deputy press secretary. And we're going to do a deep dive on this clown show in Washington, D.C. that all of us are referring to as impeachment that just needs to come to an end, ASAP, if we can get it done. Well, we have dealt with the farcical idiots that make up the House impeachment managers. We have dealt with the coronavirus. We have dealt with the Georgia legislative initiatives. And uh, now let's have a grown-up conversation with someone who is paying more attention to impeachment than me and, and hasn't fallen asleep, I, I hope. Uh, that would be Stephen Grove, special assistant to the president, deputy White House press secretary. Stephen, I, I listen. I don't know how, how. I hope they're paying you extra for having to deal with this. <laughs> there's no, there's no overtime uh, when you are uh, a commissioned <laughs> officer at the White House. You are deemed to be on duty at all hours of the day. But I tell you what, you know, it, it's not the time. It's it's it, it's the mileage. It's not the distance. It's the, <laughs> the mileage. Uh, and. Uh, well, you know, many, I, I got to tell me, you, many, many of my colleagues were up until, you know, two o'clock. I, I, I tuned in and at first I thought I was watching a, a hostage rescue mission. Then I realized, no, no, that's just the way the chief justice is looking after hearing all these people speaking. Uh, and the poor guy had to go preside over the Supreme Court this morning and back at one o'clock this afternoon. And I, I don't yeah. understand what Chuck Schumer thought he was doing other than he made Diane Feinstein mad. And she went out and started yelling at reporters. <laughs> Yeah, no one has it tougher than Justice Roberts. I mean, uh, he has to sit there and listen to it all, listen to it very closely in case he's called to, called upon to make a, a, a quick judgment on something. Um, 
but I, I'm with you. I don't know what they were trying to accomplish uh, yesterday. I I think, I mean, I, I was a Senate staffer for three years. I've got pretty good insight into the mindset of most of these these folks. And they knew that the votes weren't there for these motions. They mm-hmm. knew that it was going to be 53-47 over and over and over again, baked into the cake. And yet the Democrats persisted. And all of these motions will be taken up again after the opening statements. All of the senators knew that. But the House impeachment managers decided uh, that this is where they're drawing their line. And, you know, 12 hours later, uh, the, 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 with the score, you know, 12 to nothing in favor of the president, you know, the, the proceedings adjourned. I, I got to say, I was I, I, and I think the nation is dumber for anybody who had to listen to some of the commentary on TV yesterday. The oh, yeah. the stridency from some of the folks at CNN and mostly from MSNBC that they just knew there were going to be four votes, that there yeah. were absolutely going to be four votes from the GOP and turned out not to be the case. And the reading of tea leaves, it, it, it's, it's at times like this where you realize a lot of the people who are doing political commentary about stuff like this are trying to sound intelligent and really have no freaking clue what's going on yeah it some of it's become unwatchable i looked up at one you know here at the the white house we have a screen where it's split into four channels and so yeah i really want one of those (laughs) (laughs) uh it's really good for sports too yeah um but you can watch you know fox cnn msnbc and fox business all at the same time and i looked up one point over at the the cnn screen and saw like nine panelists uh at least eight of which, you know, just will follow their Twitter feed or Twitter feeds. They're pure Trump haters mm-hmm. and no zero Republicans and zero conservatives. And I'm like, God, what kind of conversation can they possibly be having there? I'm not going to switch over to that channel to listen to these guys. It's just some of it has become, become unwatchable. I agree with you. Now, let's get into the, the nuts and bolts of this. They are going to revisit these uh, the witness issue. And you do you have had rumblings from, for example, Susan Collins that maybe it's appropriate to have some witnesses. And, and Mitch McConnell is, is warning them that the White House may call for executive privilege. I mean, has, has the White House made any decisions on doing that yet? Uh, actually, no. Uh, I mean, at the at the at the risk of talking about uh, trial strategy one bit, which I'm not going to do, uh, you know, the, the honest truth is you kind of follow along with opening statements. You see where the, where the trial is going. You see whether which witnesses are going to be called, if any. And then and only then would I expect the president's attorneys to, uh, you know, to confer with the president whose privileges uh, reside entirely in him and him alone uh, on whether he should make any type of assertion. Uh, so no, no preordained decisions have been made. The president has made some statements uh, during interviews uh, uh, regarding whether he was inclined to assert executive privilege or not, not just for himself, but for future presidents, which have to, has to defend executive privilege. Uh, but and, until those types of decisions have to be made, uh, they don't have to be made. Works for me. So, what do you do during the day while this impeachment stuff is going on? I mean, what 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 particularly is your role in this? Uh, well, I'm a deputy press secretary, um, so I work with uh, a, a large team here. You know, it's 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 uh, a bit of a shame that there's many senior staff and junior staff here at the White House who have to spend their time with this sham. 
there's only so many hours in the day, and especially when the day goes till 2 a.m. Uh, but I work with our, you know, our legal team, our communications team, our legislative affairs team, uh, a broad spectrum of people who are all working together to make sure that, um, you know, the American people understand what the president's position uh, is on this impeachment and what's really happening in the Senate and responding to requests uh, from White House press corps and from other reporters all around uh, town and around the country. I come on uh, shows like yours to talk about this process. And you've got tons of listeners who are interested in, in, in hearing uh, you know, what's going on on the Senate floor, understanding the issues. And uh, that's all part of what uh, we do here in the White House and the comm shop. Well, listen, I, I don't want to take up a, a ton more of your time, but I, I do have one more question for you here. As this plays out, we're going into opening statements today, and it looks like we're going to refight all of these fights again. Uh, my sense of things is that actually the, the – the attention span of the American public is already worn out on this, and we're going to be moved on within two weeks uh, to something else. And uh, what do you see, uh, knowing you you know more about the White House agenda coming up than I do, and the president's in Davos right now. Uh, if you had to guess, in three weeks, uh, what is the United States going to be focused on that's not impeachment? Well, I, I hope to God that when this ends, and it will end, uh, that people can put the whole charade behind us. You know, the president wants to accomplish some things before we get into the true silly season of a campaign year. And there are things that he still wants to do in the Senate. There are bills regarding drug pricing. There are other accomplishments that he has promised the American people that he's going to continue to work hard on, even while this is going on, because this is a distraction that requires us to put resources towards it. But the president's going to continue to do the work of the American people. And that's just going to pick up even more in three weeks when we can put this entire charade behind us. <laughs> let's hope it's done in three weeks. Listen, yeah, let's hope. I, I appreciate you very much uh, stopping by on this. This is actually helpful and uh, we will continue to cover this as we need to. But uh, gosh, I agree with you. I would much rather talk about the president's agenda than, than the clown show in the Senate. Uh, so would I, and please have me on in the in the days and weeks ahead, and we can we can talk about it more because the listeners, your listeners, uh, deserve to hear to hear the whole story, and and that's what we're here to to help with. Fantastic, Stephen Groves. Thanks very much, uh, Deputy Press Secretary, Special Assistant to the President. And you know, listen, I, I I do call this a clown show, and and don't those of you who are progressives listening to me don't. I mean, you can be mad at me if you want, but let's let's understand what's actually going on with the situation in the Senate. Uh, everything is preordained. It does not matter. There are going to be no bombshells in the United States Senate. Uh, are they going to bring John Bolton? I really actually don't believe that they're going to bring John Bolton to the U.S. Senate. Uh, Bolton said he would honor a subpoena. Are they actually going to subpoena him? Do they actually have the votes to subpoena him? I don't know that they actually do. I keep going back to that Dan Abrams clip from uh, it was January 16th. It, it was on the um, it was on one of the the he was a CBS analyst. Dan Abrams, they were having this roundtable discussion. And let me play you this from the legal analyst, Dan Abrams, from ABC News. John Bolton's not testifying in front of the Senate. It's not. It's, Positive. It, it's not happening. It is not happening. He knows exactly. He's a very smart guy. He knows how the process works. He knew. He didn't say, I'll volunteer. He said, if subpoenaed. 
So when people say he's offered to testify, what do you mean? He's agreed to abide by a subpoena. If he were to get testified by he the could subpoena. go to a press conference now. Correct, correct. So, but what, what does that mean, though? That means that, okay, let's assume that they get the 51 votes and they say, we want John Bolton to testify. He shows up. And then there's going to be an argument on immunity, and then there's going to be an argument on executive privilege, and the president is going to say, it is my executive privilege um, here, it is not his decision, and it's going to work its way through the courts, and they're going to say, we don't have the time, and John Bolton's not testifying. Is testified. it definitely going to work its way through the courts, Kate Shaw, or could the chief justice he make could, a ruling? He's not going to. Bolton could still testify. Oh. I think there could be assertions of privilege, and then I think the chief would be in a very difficult position to just say, you know, senators, you work it out, or let's let the court process run its of course, I think there'd be a strong argument that the comparative advantage on ruling on this important constitutional question about the privilege, the way that co the president's communications with his advisors are subject to disclosure and where and how, that's a legal and constitutional question that the chief justice is better situated to answer than the members of the but, Senate. So but, but he but the would chief feel, justice doesn't want to answer that question, and as a feel, result, he won't. I, I, Dan Abrams is the, I don't even know who Kate is, but she's clearly got Trump derangement syndrome there. The chief justice of the United States, did you hear what she said? This is a serious legal and constitutional issue. The Chief Justice of the United States is not going to single-handedly rule on something that significant. It's going to work its way through the court process. And that's what uh, Mitch McConnell is advising senators today to, to that they need to understand that though they may want these witnesses that the president exerts executive privilege is going to go through the court system and it's going to drag impeachment out for months. Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren really want to be on the campaign trail. This is going to hold them up as well. And it's not going to happen. You know who else uh, is kind of itching for a, a subpoena to show up and testify? Possibly this guy. Ken, but I didn't think, frankly, that Bill Clinton should have been impeached. So what do you think? Will you show up at your trial any day? I'd love to go. Wouldn't that be great? So wouldn't that be beautiful? Go? I don't know. I'd sort of love to sit right in the front row and stare in their corrupt faces. I'd love to do it. So I don't know. Don't don't keep talking because I may you may convince me to do it. <laughs> I think they might have a problem. I think they might. And by the way, I think I think they've I think they've done a really good job. And I think the other side has so lied. I watched the lies from Adam Schiff. He'll stand. He'll look at a microphone. And he'll talk like he's so aggrieved. These two guys. These are major sleazebags. He's not going to get called. It, it, it is, it's fantasy that the president's going to get called. The Republicans don't want him called. The Democrats don't want him called. Uh, they they want to deal with the, the evidence and witnesses they have. They don't want to, they don't want to throw that much of a wild card into the, the, into the issue. Goodness gracious. Um, so where do we go with impeachment? They're going to make opening statements later today. I, I do and I've mentioned this and I, I talked about it with Stephen Groves, but I really do want to put this in perspective for you of the routine in Washington. The senators are having meetings each morning and the trial was supposed to begin at noon and run until 6 p.m. It looks like it's going to start now at 1 and run until 7 p.m. because of poor old John Roberts. Uh, and I really do mean poor old John Roberts. John Roberts is still the chief justice of the United States of America. Not contrary. Some people are saying he's the chief justice of the Supreme Court. Yes, but his actual title is chief justice of the United States of America. And he has to preside over the Supreme Court of the United States of America. And it is in session right now. 
They are hearing cases today, as a matter of fact. Uh, they started at 10, and it typically takes them uh, till 12. They will wrap up cases. Uh, they may abridge themselves a little bit to give him some time to get fed and caffeinated, and then he has to be marched over to the Senate, walked in with a procession, uh, and resumed the Senate in trial at one o'clock, the Senate impeachment trial at one o'clock this afternoon. He, the, the man is the hardest working person in Washington, D.C. right now. And, and I mean that very sincerely. He is busting his butt on, on at all hours of the day and night. They kept him there until 2 o'clock this morning. And he had to go home and, and go to bed and then get up and get briefed at the Supreme Court on the cases he was hearing today. Uh, I, I'm wondering, I, you, you can't tweet from the from the Supreme Court, but I'm guessing that uh, he's not asking very many questions this morning. Uh, he's probably tired, poor guy. And he does have to pay attention to the impeachment trial. Stephen said if there's an objection or something, he's kind of paid attention so that he can make a ruling. Keep John Roberts in your prayers, folks. <laughs> um, when we come back, I, I want to talk about this issue of executive privilege because I've got to tell you, I actually think, and there is a strong argument to be made even among the founders of this country, that executive privilege does not apply or does not apply very much in an impeachment situation. Uh, in an impeachment trial of the president of the United States, do you know who the most powerful group of people are? the states of the United States of America through their representatives, the U.S. senators, because they single-handedly, without input from anyone else, get to decide the fate of the nation. I got a question. I, 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 I would love for the media to follow up. Remember this person? Trump is now president of the United States. What a great address. honor to be able to introduce for the first time ever anywhere. <laughs> Whatever happened to that person? Scream now! When the president uh, is was made president, whatever happened to to that woman? You know, I also I find it interesting that remember the woman who yanked the Pope by the arm and he had to pop her hand. How is it the media has not been able to find this woman and conduct an interview with her? Uh, my goodness gracious. Um, I, the media can find everyone on the planet and yet hadn't been able to find this woman. I just, I'm, I'm fascinated by that because it was such a, a media sensation. It lasted as a story, at least 48 hours in a news cycle, which at this day and age is actually a really big deal. And yet they've never tracked this woman down to do an interview. It's fascinating. Okay. Um, I, um, I need to, um, bum, 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 bum. I, I need to move on to executive privilege. Executive privilege is not in the United States Constitution. It was actually something that George Washington came up with. Uh, you got to remember that the presidency was quasi modeled on the King of England. There were a lot of people in uh, the early nation that would have made George Washington king, and he was very insistent we become a republic and really established many of the patterns and practices of the presidency. Uh, in fact, the, the two-term presidency is something that George Washington established that was kept until uh, Franklin Roosevelt. And Roosevelt, actually, I do think, you know, Republicans don't like Roosevelt and whatnot, but I actually do think Roosevelt would have been a two-term president, not a four-term president, had not World War II happened. 
And uh, but regardless of that, uh, a lot of the patterns and practices of the presidency come from Washington, including the assertion of executive privilege, that there are some private conversations that the president has that Congress can't know about. And in fact, the early founders argued that the president has further latitude with the House of Representatives than the Senate when it comes to executive privilege. But I got to tell you, my personal position is that executive privilege cannot apply in an impeachment trial, that when there is an impeachment trial of the president, it is not a criminal trial. Uh, There is no right for the president to avoid self-incrimination. It is the states, and I realize we don't look at it as the states, we look at it as the senators, but the senators are the representatives, not of the people, but of the states. And the states ceded their sovereignty under the Constitution to Washington, D.C. They are semi-autonomous entities uh, with certain powers ceded to Washington, D.C., and the rest of the powers reserved for themselves under the Tenth Amendment. And the states become the most powerful entity in the nation in an impeachment trial because it is the states being asked to ascertain if the chief executive officer of the entity to which they ceded their power is fit to remain in office. And the states, therefore, need all of the available information possible. And that includes the private conversations of the president with his ministers to find out if the president has been abusing his power. Now, I agree that impeachment should be based on crimes because it is for bribery and other high crimes and misdemeanors. But the reality is that most impeachments are about abuse of power. And the founders of this country, the people who wrote the Constitution, were the very first people to consider impeachments, and the very first impeachments were all about abuse of power, was not about uh, criminal matters. However, they did maintain that when it is about abuse of power, it should be tangentially related to to inappropriate behavior that could be considered criminal. And that's why I think this impeachment has lowered the bar so much what the president did was wrong but it's not impeachable because it really doesn't relate i don't think to a crime you can say quid pro quo all you want but a quid pro, quid, quid pro quo is not a crime but here we are in impeachment and the states empowered and indwelling the within the senate should be able to call up the president's advisors and say What did you talk about with the president? Did you warn him? Did you advise him? What did he say? And the president should not be able to exert executive privilege. Now, there are a couple of caveats here. There may be information that should not be disclosed. And in that case, the Senate should go behind closed doors as they are privileged to do and redact the transcripts. On top of that, the information that does come out, whether redacted or not, if it could incriminate the president in a criminal trial, should be prohibited from being used in a criminal trial because the president in a criminal trial does have the right to avoid self-incrimination. So you should not be able to uh, reveal evidence that could uh, reveal a crime and then use that against the president later because self-incrimination should not apply in an impeachment trial, but it does apply in a criminal trial. So there are parameters there, but I think you got to give the Senate every bit of information they want that's relevant, and that's what the Chief Justice comes in and makes a decision on whether or not it's relevant. And all all this talk about executive privilege, though, it's going to be fought out in court. We are in uncharted territory because this is only the third time it's happened in American history. There's no precedent for it, and that's what we live off of to make our decisions on this issue. Hello, America. It is Eric Erickson here, The Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, if you want to call in and have a chat with me, want to give your thoughts on impeachment, ask a question, the phone number is 877-97-ERIC. 
877-973-7425. Them's the phone numbers. Uh, the National Weather Service is warning about falling iguanas. That's right. Uh, the temperature, it has dropped in Florida. Uh, 10 to 15 degrees below normal. In parts of Florida, hard freezes down into middle Florida, down into the Orlando area. It's going to be super cold. And when that happens, uh, iguanas uh, freeze and fall from trees. Uh, when the temperature drops below 50 degrees, they uh, go lethargic. And when it gets below 45 degrees, they go dormant in a cold, stunned state. They appear dead. But they're not critical body functions still operate and but they can fall out of they lose their grip and fall out of trees. If it remains in the 40s for more than eight hours, a lot of them will die. The cold temperatures in Florida actually are good because of the Python epidemic down there. And uh, so cold temperature is helpful, but uh, the iguanas are going to be falling from the trees down there. <laughs> Um, okay, we've got a situation here. I want to, we'll get back into impeachment. And listen, uh, my apologies as well. I told you guys on Monday, Stephen Gutowski was going to be here at the bottom of the hour to talk about the gun situation. He's really the only reporter I trust. And it is a, a, it is a very big deal. I wanted to get him here and I, I messed up on my end. Well, I, I didn't, I got, got trapped in a situation and I can't get out of it. And he's. Uh, we're going to have to reschedule with him, uh, and I'm I'm been in a foul mood about the situation, but uh, he had no schedule flexibility. He's at Shot Show in Vegas and had stuff he had to do, but we're going to get him on. Um, and right now, I so we'll get back into impeachment here, and and I've got audio from the floor and stuff. I I don't know that a lot of it is needed. We'll get some of it, um, but I, I do just briefly want to mention the story that is just uh, burning up the internet right now from the New York Times. A forensic analysis of Jeff Bezos' cell phone found with medium to high confidence that the Amazon chief's device was hacked after he received a video from a WhatsApp account reportedly belonging to Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia. After Mr. Bezos, who also owns the Washington Post, got the video over the WhatsApp messaging platform in 2018, his phone began sending unusually large volumes of data, according to a report summing up investigators' findings. The investigators believed Prince Mohammed was used as a conduit because the message would not raise suspicions if it came from him, said a person familiar with the investigation who declined to be identified. According to the report, Mr. Bezos received a message from the Crown Prince's account in late 2018 that suggested the prince had intimate knowledge of Mr. Bezos's private life. The forensic investigation was completed on behalf of Mr. Bezos by Anthony Ferrante at the business advisory firm FTI Consulting. After the findings were reported by The Guardian and The Financial Times, the Saudi embassy denied the government was involved. Mr. Bezos's security consultant, Gavin DeBecker, had previously accused the Saudi government of hacking Mr. Bezos' phone, saying the Saudi authorities targeted him because he owned the Washington Post. The Post had aggressively reported on the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, one of its columnists, who was a critic of the Saudi government. The CIA has concluded that Prince Mohammed ordered the killing. 
According to the security firm's investigation, Mr. Bezos and Prince Mohammed exchanged phone numbers at a dinner in Los Angeles in 2018. The Crown Prince initiated a messaging conversation with Mr. Bezos the same day over WhatsApp. A month later, Mr. Bezos received an unexpected message from the Crown Prince that contained a video attachment. The report did not say whether Mr. Bezos opened the video attachment, which had an image of Saudi and Swedish flags overlaid with Arabic text. But immediately he, after he received the file, the amount of data existing exiting his phone increased 300-fold. On two later occasions, the Crown Prince appeared to send Mr. Bezos messages that suggested he had knowledge of the tech mogul's private communications. My goodness gracious. Now, if this could happen to Jeff Bezos, think of what could happen to the President of the United States. Um... I, as an aside, there is I, I only have one person on planet Earth I use WhatsApp with. Uh, <laughs> I can't tell you all the story, but uh, I, I got one person uh, that I use WhatsApp with. It is a secure messaging service owned by Facebook. And Facebook is making it end-to-end encrypted. Uh, for example, so the moral of the story is, is uh, you should use an iPhone uh, because if you use an iPhone and you, you trade messages with someone, your messages are either blue or they're green. If you're if you have an iPhone and you're sending text messages back and forth on the messaging app and they're green, you're using the standard SMS messaging protocol, which is highly unsecure. But if you're using Apple's messaging service uh, and the bubbles are blue, you're in a highly secure text messaging system that even the U.S. government can't break into because Apple has built a system that doesn't have back doors. Um, Apple decided to build a system where they could not get into it if there was a problem uh, because they wanted to respect your privacy. As a result of that, if you're on if you're on an iPhone and you're using Apple's messaging service and you were to get something like what Prince um, uh, Muhammad sent to Jeff Bezos, the system by which that message uh, had a had a malicious file code in it could not work uh, because Apple has on their phone something called a secure enclave. And to be able to transmit data, you have to go through the secure enclave. And it doesn't give permission. Um, but if you route around and use something like WhatsApp, it can it can ignore the secure enclave. And I don't know whether Bezos has an Android device or, or an iPhone. Uh, my guess is he would have an iPhone and is using WhatsApp, but it was able then to dig into it. And, and if he's using WhatsApp, that in particular, uh, if WhatsApp has access to your contacts and you have a, a essentially malicious code running inside WhatsApp, uh, then it can get your contacts and it can get all of your other WhatsApp messages. That can't happen with iMessage. That's why the government hates iMessage. In fact, uh, the president is really upset with Apple and the way Apple has done iMessage and its encryption services. Here's the president talking in Davos about this issue. Apple, what do you think? You're, you're friend, uh, I, I think am. I like him a lot. Person, yeah. I think so, we should do some... Encryption. I think we should uh, we should start finding some of the bad people out there that we can do with Apple. I think it's very important. Frankly, I've helped them a lot. Uh, I've given them waivers because I want them. It's a great company, but it made a big difference. And, you know, they compete against Samsung, mostly Samsung. I guess that would be their number one competitor. That's from South Korea. It's not fair because we have a trade deal with South Korea, so Samsung would get the no waiver and they would they would have to pay uh, tariffs. So I did waivers, but I want them to help us a little bit. They, you know, Apple has to help us, and I'm very strong on it. Uh, they have the keys to so many 
criminals and criminal minds, and we can do things. When they had the problem with the uh, recently in Florida, I won't go into it because it's so horrible. Right. But they could have given us that information. It would have been very helpful. Well, we don't need a backdoor uh, way in getting into the wrong hands either. You, you, do you, no, no, do I you, understand. You know what? I understand both sides of the argument. And this one, you're this dealing one with drug relationship lords, with, with Tim, if you're dealing with drug lords, yeah. if you're dealing with terrorists, and if you're dealing with murderers, I don't care. We have to get. Okay. We have to find out what's going on. I'm sympathetic to the argument, and I mentioned this the other day, but it is an emotional argument, and let's not kid ourselves. It's an emotional argument that somehow Apple is helping the bad guys. No, Apple is actually helping its customers. If Apple were to build a backdoor or if Facebook were to build a backdoor into WhatsApp, it's not just a backdoor that those companies could use. It's a backdoor that the federal government can use. It's a backdoor that China could use. It's a backdoor that Russia could use. It's a backdoor that malicious hackers can use. I know enough to know with WhatsApp and as I mentioned, if WhatsApp is a self-contained application, I am I, I actually I'm going to make the assumption that Jeff Bezos has an iPhone and not an Android device. I, I don't know that, uh, but I'm going to assume he has an, an iPhone. And the reason I'm going to cons- uh, assume that is because high net worth individuals tend to have iPhones, uh, not Android devices, unless you're you're a, a Facebook executive or a Google executive. And, and then you get you've gotten mad at Apple and Tim Cook. And so you have an Android device instead. But WhatsApp, given the the parameters by which WhatsApp works on uh, iPhone and works on Android, iOS and Android, it's a self-contained app, and you can run code within that app. Uh, So you get a malicious piece of code designed to run in WhatsApp from the Saudi crown prince. Uh, You don't realize it. It's a GIF. Uh, You don't realize it's running uh, behind the animated picture. It's running code. It's running code, at least on an iPhone, only within that app. Uh, Apple uses what's called sandboxing. Which is why you, you've got a little more flexibility and tricks you can use in Android devices because Android devices can can work across devi- can work across apps. With Apple, each app is siloed into its own little sandbox. So code running in WhatsApp cannot then be used to get into a different program. It only works within WhatsApp. But if Jeff Bezos is using WhatsApp for private conversations, and a lot of people use WhatsApp for secure private conversations, then it has the ability to run its code within WhatsApp and get all of the messages you've sent in WhatsApp and all the contacts that WhatsApp has access to and send it back to Saudi Arabia. They could index all of his conversations from within WhatsApp. If you use Apple's mess iMessages, it doesn't work that way. And, and I don't understand why people don't recognize this. Messages is actually probably iMessage on, on Apple's device is probably the most secure messaging protocol out there. Because in addition to the fact that you can't run code in uh, iMessage, each message is individually siloed. So, for example, let, let's just say they were able to find a hack and they were able to run that code in a message between the Saudi crown prince and Jeff Bezos, the only information that that what's what the the code could get would be the message between the crown prince and Jeff Bezos. Each individual message is protected in iMessage in a way it's not on any of the other messaging services, whether from Apple or from any other competing services, WhatsApp and the like. Uh, it's just way more secure. 
The government wants backdoors into these programs because the government, if there's a terrorist or a bad guy or a suspicion, they want to be able to go in. Watching the FISA court operate and watching how the administration abused the FISA court to, or the Obama administration abused the FISA court to go after the president, I would be horrified to know that Apple and Facebook had built backdoors into this stuff. The other interesting thing here is that we are allies with Saudi Arabia. And increasingly, I do believe that Saudi Arabia is taking advantage of our alliance to behave badly, knowing that they have the president's ear in favor and Jared Kushner's support and can get away with a lot. And because they hate the Iranians and we hate the Iranians, uh, we can all work together and the president will turn a blind eye to a lot of this stuff because the president hates Jeff Bezos as well. President liked Bezos because Bezos owns the Washington Post. The president hates the Washington Post. Therefore, he hates Jeff Bezos. I kind of wonder, do... (sighs) Does Bezos regret buying the Washington Post now? Because none of this stuff would have happened had Bezos stayed away from the Washington Post. It was the Washington Post. Um, Jamal Khashoggi was the uh, columnist for the Washington Post, who, frankly, I never even heard of until he, he was murdered by the Saudis. And let's not mince words with it. He was murdered by the Saudis in Turkey. But I I never heard of the guy, and, and suddenly it's a big deal. It becomes an international scandal. It still is. The Washington Post still is demanding justice, and Bezos is their owner. None of this stuff would have happened to Jeff Bezos had he not bought the Washington Post. And, and for those of you who don't know, if you don't recall, turns out Jeff Bezos was was having an affair, I, I believe. He and his wife are getting a divorce now. She gets a significant portion of Amazon in the divorce because she helped him start it. And and he's got some woman. I, I, I've I'm the, the New York Times has a picture of Bezos and the new woman. And I she is trying too hard. I just I don't y'all I, I'm not that person. And and I don't understand the people who feel like they've got to they've got to have some hot young thing all the time uh and i love my wife and I, I just i don't i don't get that and then the need for some of these people to decide they need to go get plastic have you get, do people who get plastic surgery not realize they look like they've had plastic surgery and i do understand i've talked to enough plastic surgeons that there is a price point at which you can get some plastic surgery where no one's going to realize you had plastic surgery but most people seem not to get to that price point and they get the plastic surgery like uh yeah you 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 had a little injection here and a little nip and a little tuck and a little pull back there i'm sorry but when I look at someone who has had their face pulled back like that, I'm like, do you not realize you just don't look normal? And I'm not saying Bezos woman, but I'm, I'm, she's in this picture. She looks like she's trying very hard to, I, I don't, I don't even know. Uh, I don't know. And then there's the Botox stuff. And I was actually on TV one time with famous celebrity who will go nameless, who very clearly had had Bo, um, Botox and I mean, her forehead had no movement, none. There was no furrowed brow. There was nothing. I had very clearly gotten the wrinkles out of her forehead, and it was rather impossible uh, for her forehead to move. And I've talked to enough plastic surgeons to know that you should, like, lay low for several days after you've had the Botox, and your face will go back to normal without all the wrinkles. But, man, she must have had it in the last 48 hours because it was numb. 
And yeah, I just, I don't understand that. I I, I don't understand any of this. I, I don't understand the, 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 the well, I, I do from a theological perspective, I understand it. Um, but you know, there, there's more than this world. Uh, you'll have a new heaven, a new earth and a, and, and you'll have your, your best self in the new one. There's no reason to pump it full of plastic and Botox now. All right. Uh, we will get back into impeachment here at the bottom of the hour and uh, just the, the state of play moving forward. But I got to you remember the, the Jeb Bush moment on the campaign trail, the, the please clap. Uh, Pete Buttigieg is like a uh, millennial Jeb. L- listen to this exchange on the campaign trail in Iowa. By having better hands guided by better values on those pulleys and levers of American government. So can I look to you to spread that sense of hope to those that you know? Come on. <laughs> come on. Come on. Yeah, clap. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, wow. Um, didn't didn't go over well. Um, and meanwhile, in Davos, while the president was there, and I do find this funny, the president of the United States uh, going to Davos, uh, and Greta Thunberg is there. Remember Greta Greta, I, I don't know if she walked or took a train or what from Sweden. She certainly didn't fly. She's out shaming people. What's so funny, honestly, is all the world leaders flying in in private jets and it made her livid. Well, she decided she needed to, to go on a, on a dissertation in front of the world leaders. The facts are clear, but they are still too uncomfortable for you to address. You just leave it because you think it's too depressing and people will give up. But people will not give up. You are the ones who are giving up. I wonder what will you tell your children was the reason to fail and leave them facing a climate chaos that you knowingly brought upon them? That it seemed so bad for the economy that we decided to resign the idea of securing future living conditions without even trying? Our house is still on fire. Your inaction is fueling the flames by the hour, and we are telling you to act as if you loved your children above all else. You know, I gotta tell you, I really do resent the environmental activists out there who believe that if if I don't operate like they do and see the world the way they do, that I must not love the planet or my children the way they do. Uh, who is she to tell me how to live my life? Who are environmentalists to tell me how to live my family's life? What they want me to do, and by the way, they're, they're anti-family. They do not want you to have kids or at least to have small families. They want to regulate out of existence uh, large vehicles for large families. They want to make it as punitive as possible for people to have large families, to be fruitful and multiply. And they want us to give up the comforts of Western society while keeping poor countries impoverished because God forbid African countries get air conditioning. I just don't take these people seriously. I have evolved in my position on the climate. I do think there is enough documentary evidence out there that something is going on with climate patterns on the planet. Is it natural or human? 
We can argue over it. I do think with 7 billion people on the planet, we play a role, but I simply don't care. And I don't care whether you care or not. It is, it is not something that keeps me up at night. Human beings, I've been told forever, are adaptable creatures. How is it we can't adapt to this? Of course we can. We'll adapt to impeachment as well. We'll get back into impeachment when we come back right here on The Eric Erickson Show. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here, The Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. The phone number, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I, can I... Can we be honest? We, we've gotten to know each other now, haven't we, for some time? Y'all kind of get a sense of who I am. I actually think I hate everybody in Washington. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't say it that way. I, I, I certainly have people in Washington who I know and I really like. I, I'm actually good friends with some of them. Some of them I helped get elected. The, the vice president and I, for example, we've known each other uh, for more than a decade. Uh, he was one of the very first people I got to know in politics. I've actually got a uh, signed uh, copy of Russell Kirk's Conservative Mind. It's signed by the vice president. It was, it was the first gift I've ever gotten from a politician was from him. And, and Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, uh, Tom Cotton and I have gotten to know each other. It, Tim Scott has come to so many of my conferences. Jim Jordan, Jody Heiss, Doug Hawks. There are a lot of people I like. There are a lot of people I like. But but I, I, I really dislike the Republican Party and the Democratic Party a lot these days. I don't even know what the Republican Party stands for anymore. And I was an elected Republican. I, I, I really have no idea what it stands for anymore. And that, to me, is is somewhat disheartening because other than defense of the president, I don't know. So so if you'll allow uh, that, that being said, let me give you the, the actual the, the what happened with the impeachment trial yesterday for those who hate everybody. The reality is, if we are really honest about it. Uh, am I going to say that? some of you are going to hate me for saying this, but I'm going to say it. Because I mean it, and you know this. This gets to something I said the other day that I know people in talk radio. You know, you listen to some of these people, not not the super big names, mind you, um, but there are people in talk radio, there are people on Fox News, and there are Republicans in Congress who hate the president, but they feel like they need to tell you what you want to hear. And there, there are some prominent people in, on the talk radio landscape who do that, who are deeply cynical of the president, and they're willing to say or do anything to get access. And frankly, they're afraid of losing you. They don't want to lose their audience. They don't want to make you mad. And so they're not willing to say things that might make you mad. And, and y'all, I'm sorry. I, I, I love you. I'm a conservative, but I'm a Christian first. And I don't feel like, I don't think, it's not a feel, it's a think. I, I don't think I should tell you something uh, that makes you feel good about yourself or make you like me when I don't really believe it. And so I need to tell you something you're not going to like. Because it, it really doesn't matter. But, you know, Adam Schiff really didn't do that bad of a job last night and, and yesterday afternoon. And I don't even like the guy. It pains me to have to say it. But the fact of the matter is that the president's lawyers focused on process 
And Adam Schiff made his argument, and, and the president's lawyers really miscalculated. The president's lawyers really thought that the Democrats were going to make process arguments about the need to have witnesses. And Adam Schiff didn't do that. What Adam Schiff did is he made it about, based on the existing evidence and the existing statements from everybody, uh, that uh, the president has, they've met the burden to convict the president. And the only reason they want the additional witnesses is to add depth for those who are unpersuaded, but they believe, based on what they have right now, that they, in fact, should uh, be able to convict the president. And, you know, he didn't do a bad job, even if I don't like the guy. And I don't think it matters. I mean, don't hear me praising Schiff here. I, I, I really don't think it matters. What matters is that there aren't the votes there. And this should be left to the voters. But I, I don't want to play partisan shill for you either. I don't want to tell you something I don't believe. Uh, the fact is, I, I, I thought the president's, uh, some of the president, not all the president's team, some of the president's team, uh, Pat Sibliani, I, I thought actually did a good job. But some of it was kind of a clown show, and they were arguing process, and the Democrats were arguing based on the existing facts. Here's why we think the president should be. Good. It was just it was at a different league. It, it was I, I was kind of shocked. But then the president has a bunch of people who he's familiar with them because he saw them on Fox, and, and they may not necessarily be the greatest people. But again, it doesn't matter. The Democrats don't have the votes, and it's a waste of time, and they shouldn't be doing it. Uh, they should not be impeaching the president of the United States. They should let the voters decide. They should let the voters take this up. I mean, and, and this, is, this is my thinking on this. If I were in the United States Senate, I would not vote to convict the president of the United States of impeachment. I would not. I don't think that the Democrats did a good job Contrary to what Adam Schiff said, and again, I, I thought he made a good and, and compelling argument, but they never talked to Mick Mulvaney. They never talked to Russ Vote. They never talked to John Bolton, all of whom have vital information. And they can say that the president would have exerted executive privilege, but they never were willing to have the fight. And I see no reason that the Senate of the United States needs to make a fight over something the House members were too lazy to have a fight about. And based on the existing evidence we have, I can tell you what the president did was wrong. He should not have done it. He should have done it if only for the fact that he knew there were some clowns within the administration who were out to get him. They were holdover embeds from the Obama administration. Anything he said or did was fair game for them, and he opened himself up to it. It was a stupid, stupid thing for him to do. We would not be, we would not have had the Mueller investigation had the president exercised self-control and not fired James Comey. We would not have had impeachment had the president exercised self-control and not brought up the Bidens uh, to Zelensky. And and we know for a matter of fact that the president's senior advisors told him not to do it. But the president decided to listen to some geriatric blue hairs from late night Fox and Rudy Giuliani and decided to engage on the issue with the president of Ukraine and put himself in this position. It was wrong. He shouldn't have done it, but it's not impeachable. It is not impeachable. Let the voters decide in November. We are a 50-50 nation. I, I want to tell you all a story. I, I, I've said this on, on uh, my other radio show. L let me tell you a story. It's been, what now, two years ago? Uh, yeah, 2018, I guess it was. Was it 2018? Yeah, I think it was 2018. I was filming a TV show in Washington, D.C. 
and I got invited uh, to go grocery shopping with a Republican member of Congress who ironically had been on TV several times singing the president's praises, and he unloaded on the president. One of the things I will never forget, one of the things that he called the president was an effing evil Forrest Gump. That's how a member of Congress described the president of the United States to me, and this was a Republican who would praise the president on TV. An effing evil Forrest Gump. That, that A Republican who voted against impeachment. There are a lot of Republicans in the House who don't like the president. And like this guy, they go on TV, they say nice things, but they they don't like the president. They blame him for themselves losing power. There are 21 Republicans, half of them at least, hate the president's guts. And I know this because I've talked to some of them. They blame the president for their loss of power. They blame the president for their departure from Congress. They blame the president for the demographic shift in their districts that's moved them to the Democratic side. They have no chance of getting reelected. They don't want to even do the fundraising and put up the fight because they know there's no shot. They do not like the president of the United States, and the Democrats got exactly zero of them to side with the Democrats on impeachment. They couldn't do it. They couldn't make the case. They couldn't build the burden with these Republicans who hate the president's guts and never have to deal with the president's voters again. Some of them hate the president's voters. They drip with contempt for the president's voters, and they never have to face those voters again. They have no fear of the president's voters because they're not going to stand for re-election. They would get multi-million dollar TV contracts if they gave them the middle finger by voting for impeachment, and even they would not do it. The Democrats could not convince even them to vote for impeachment. So why the hell should they try to think they can get two-thirds of the vote of the Senate? They can't. When you can't pick up the vote of a Republican member of Congress who refers to the president of the United States as an effing evil Forrest Gump, you got problems. And it's because you didn't meet your burden of proof. When you can't get 15 Republicans who are leaving Congress who hate the president's guts and hate his voters as well, and you can't get them to vote for you, you got problems. That's not a fight for the Senate. We are a 50-50 nation. We are split. We are tattered. We are tearing apart at the seams. And the Democrats, to go to the Senate and do this and to not even take the effort to do a serious deep dive on this case, that's problematic. For the Democrats of the United States to decide they're going to go to the United States Senate with the case they have when they couldn't persuade a single Republican, some of whom hate the president's guts, that's uncalled for. That is divisive. That is wrong. That is a waste of time. They should not have done this. Adam Schiff did a, a, did a fine job. The president's lawyers actually looked like a clown show. I was surprised they didn't come in with oversized shoes and, and big horns going honky, honky, honky. I mean, it was a total clown show on the president's side. And it doesn't matter. The Democrats don't have the votes. They were never going to get the votes, and they know this. What are they doing? They're fundraising. What are they doing? They're keeping Bernie and Elizabeth Warren on the out of the campaign trail, helping Joe Biden. None of this matters. You know what matters? We've got our first case of the coronavirus, the, the uh, Wuhan flu or pneumonia or whatever they're calling it here in the United States. The CDC is having to deal with. There may be more cases coming. That actually matters in life. Some of you could get sick. Now, it's one case. It's in Washington state, so none of you are going to get sick from it, but it matters. This does not matter. 
This is a, a this is a kabuki theater. This is elaborate machinations. This is an elaborate dance structure. This is an elaborate thematic play on the floor of the Senate that the media wants to guilt you into watching. The media is heavily invested in this because the media not only hates the president, believes it's great ratings. It's good for the media's business to have this trial, and they want to guilt you into watching it. Do you know Adam Schiff was a was a question on Jeopardy, and no one could get it. I mean, they they put up his picture and said this is the the man leading the impeachment effort against Donald Trump and nobody could say who is Adam Schiff. They didn't know. That's how much the American public is paying attention to impeachment right now. They had no idea on Jeopardy who Adam Schiff was. The media has tried to turn Adam Schiff into a folk hero for what? They, 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 they can't even get him up with enough ID on Jeopardy. We're a 50-50 divided nation. The Democrats constructed a mythology in 2016 to deny the fact that Hillary Clinton was a crap candidate. Hillary Clinton could not get elected in 2016, not because of the Russians and not because of James Comey, but because her little hipster millennial campaign manager in Brooklyn, New York, decided that they were only going to run a campaign for hipster Brooklyn millennials and not for the rest of the nation. And when Bill Clinton said, you're going to lose the blue-collar voters that Obama was able to get in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, Hillary Clinton's campaign manager ignored Bill Clinton, said he was outmoded, outdated, a fossil. They didn't need to listen to him. They were not going to go campaign there. That's why Hillary Clinton lost had nothing to do with the Russians. But the Democrats have believed the mythology, just like they believe the mythology that, that they lost Georgia because Brian Kemp stole the election and Stacey Abrams really governor. No, you actually lost a fair fight because your candidate wasn't as good and there were more Republicans who turned out in those areas. And in believing this mythology, they're now telling themselves, we have to do this because he's going to steal it again. He's done it once, he's going to do it a second. He never did it the first time, you morons. And listen, I, I, I try not to get into, into personal attacks because we should make it about the issues. But you're an idiot if you really believe the Russians were able to persuade enough Americans to vote for Donald Trump in those states than Hillary Clinton. That's one reason the Electoral College is a good thing, because you never know where to apply. If it was just the major cities, it'd be very easy to steal elections in the United States. But the Democrats have to believe that mythology. They have to believe that mythology. And as a result, they have to do impeachment because they're convinced he's going to steal 2020, but they're not going to win. And they know it behind the scenes. They already know it. So they're doing this as a dog and pony show as Kabuki theater to fundraise, to rally their base, to try to claim the Republicans are unjust and unfair and biased and, and haters. They're splitting the country apart for political gain and using the most powerful tool of the United States Congress to do it the removal of the president of the United States, the states through their representatives in the Senate empowered for impeachment are at their most powerful at this moment. The states that ceded power to Washington to form this union now have total power to remove the president of the United States and shape the future. And the Democrats are playing with that tool for partisan gain. They should leave this to the voters of the United States come November that's what should have happened all along, and that should be the Republican argument here. Let the voters be the ones who decide this issue. Okay, can we talk a matter of strategy here? Seriously, let's talk a matter of strategy in the Senate of what happened last night. The Democrats pulled a procedure uh, where they, they wanted to, to pull a bunch of votes. Uh, my buddy Jamie Dupree 
did a number of these votes. Uh, there were, gosh, uh, I mean, they started in the evening. The U.S. Senate um, voted to table subpoena documents. Uh, they voted 53 to 47 to table the First Amendment on uh, documents related to Ukraine for the White House. They voted 53 to 47 to uh, subpoena Office of Management and Budget documents. They voted 53 to 47 to against subpoenaing the State Department. They voted 53 to 47 against subpoenaing Mick Mulvaney, the, um, the White House Chief of Staff. Uh, just on and on and on it went. They, and by the way, you should know that Mitch McConnell said out of the gate yesterday that they were not going to entertain motions to call witnesses until the opening statements had concluded and the senators had had an opportunity to ask questions of the impeachment managers and the president's team. That's what they did with Clinton. That's what they're doing now. I played the audio for you of, of Jerry Nadler saying he was, was unaware of why they were so obsessed with the Clinton impeachment stuff, uh, with the Clinton impeachment precedent. Well, it's because the Senate, if Jerry Nadler's in the House, so he probably doesn't know it, but the Senate is precedent-driven. The precedent genuinely matters. Here, here's, here's the Nadler clip from earlier. I just want to add that this fixation on the Clinton precedent is weird. The Clinton trial was conducted fairly. But distorting what happened there shouldn't make a difference. The question is, should you have a fair trial now? Any intelligent person knows that in any trial, whether it's for robbing a bank or for subverting the Constitution of the United States, the accusers, in this case the House of Representatives, bring in all the witnesses and all the evidence. Now that that was that was Nadler. Um, sorry if you only heard that out of one one channel, um, but uh, that that was Jerry Nadler saying he, he can't understand this obsession with the Clinton precedent. Well, because the Senate is an institution built on precedent, the Senate governs itself on precedent. That's why McConnell said they weren't going to consider these motions on witnesses until after the uh, opening statements and the time for senators to ask questions. It was consistent with the Senate impeachment uh, trial precedent. But, okay, so here's the thing, and, and this is why I bring it up, because even Diane Feinstein last night was telling reporters it was time to move on from these motions, and it was time to move on from the motions because it, they were very clearly all going to go that way. She was ready to, for this thing to wind up for the day. They just needed to be done with it. She was venting frustration that others on her side shared that they were just dragging the clock out on this. And I think she's right, by the way. But here's the strategic problem for a guy like Schumer. And Schumer's a smart guy. He should know this, whether you like him or not. He's a smart guy. But the problem is institutionally and, and, and from a strategic standpoint, when you start filing the series of motions and you file it and there's a vote and it's a no and you file it and there's a vote and it's a no and you file it and there's a vote and it's a no, well, what happens is you 
you get the senators in the rhythm of voting no on one side, and they stop trying to consider your points. So when you have something else that comes up in the series of amendments, well, they're they've they're used to voting no now. They're it's 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 they're late. It's they're tired. Excuse me. They're, they're, it's tired. I'm losing my ability to speak. They're tired. It's late. They want to go home. And you keep filing motions you know we're going to lose. They get fed up and just out of spite, they start doing this. It's the same way. Imagine playing the whack-a-mole game. You know the whack-a-mole game. You get the, the big oversized mallet and the little, little mole pops his head up and you're supposed to pound it with the mallet at the arcade. And it keeps coming out of the same hole. And bam, bam, bam. It's coming out of the same hole. So you keep hitting it out of the same hole. And you just get into the habit of hitting it out of the same hole. And now suddenly it pops up somewhere else. You're going to hit the old hole. You're never even going to consider it popping over there because all it does is pop up in that one hole. It's it's whack-a-mole with these, but the mole comes out of the same thing. You, you do these motions one after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other, and it's all no, 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 no. Then you get to a substantive motion where you really do have a persuasive case, and you may be able to pick off some of these senators, and they just automatically vote no because they're used to voting no. And what's more troubling is that there was this whole fan fiction thing from MSNBC today and from CNN, um, or yesterday rather, and this morning we heard it as well, that they may be able to get a couple of senators. They may be able to get some of them. They may be able to do this. No. No. Turns out they didn't have the votes. Then they never had the votes. They weren't going to get the votes. That's the reality of the situation. They weren't going to get the votes. They didn't have the votes. And the media kept telling people that there were the votes, but there weren't the votes. The votes were never there. It was all a lie from the press and the pundits who were trying to get people's hopes up. And those hopes were crushed, probably as they should be. All right. We'll do this all over again tomorrow. Y'all guy, y'all have a great day.